From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. The recipe is unique to what desired melt we want, what desired mouthfeel we're looking for, and the ratio of those ingredients is going to dictate that. This week, looking towards Valentine's Day, we visit a chocolate factory and learn how the fruit of the cacao tree is transformed into a silky bar of chocolate. And not just any chocolate, fair trade chocolate. We speak with Hans Thayer, the CEO of Fairtrade America, about what it means to be Fairtrade certified. That's all coming up in the next half hour, so stay with us. First, this news with Renee Reed. Hello, Renee. Hello, Kate. The coronavirus outbreak has trade experts worried about the fate of the Phase 1 trade agreement between the U.S. and China. Todd Hubbs is an agriculture economist at the University of Illinois. He says even before the outbreak, there was concern that China wouldn't be able to meet trade targets set in the agreement. Yeah, there's just a lot of uncertainty about it, and this this new outbreaks really hurting things quite a bit. Many Chinese cities are under lockdown and some major air carriers are canceling flights to and from China because of the pneumonia-like illness. He says the problem is that a slowdown in the Chinese economy means that people buy less goods, including agricultural goods. Hub says the coronavirus outbreak has already had a negative impact on commodity prices, especially soybeans. Watchdogs and researchers say growing air and water pollution from fertilizer runoff lacks regulation and needs creative solutions. Fertilizer runoff from farms causes greenhouse gas emissions and toxic algae blooms. In October last year, more than 150 scientists signed an open letter calling for world leaders to act against nitrogen pollution. The letter stated that sustainable nitrogen management would help prevent millions of premature deaths, help ensure food security, and simultaneously help to protect wildlife and the ozone layer. The Center for Public Integrity, Grist, and the World have reported in an investigative series about largely unregulated chemical fertilizers that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency names as one of America's most widespread, costly, and challenging environmental problems. Despite long-standing warnings from the EPA, agriculture has sidestepped the kind of federal oversight seen in other sectors that cause pollution. Investigators found that rules are often derailed or softened after industry pushback and political pressure. Negative effects of fertilizer runoff have been severe. Runoff from fields across the Midwest, flowing into the Mississippi, have caused a huge plume of algae known as the Gulf of Mexico dead zone, an oxygen-deprived area off the coast of Louisiana and Texas. Globally, dead zones have quadrupled in the last 50 years as farmers increasingly grow subsidized monoculture crops like corn, soybeans, biofuels, and livestock feed. Even before reaching the ocean, fertilizers feed toxic algae blooms in lakes and evaporate into the air. Those gases can trigger asthma, and contaminated drinking water causes so-called blue baby syndrome, which blocks infants from absorbing oxygen. In Indiana, researchers are working on a model that could help. A drainage experiment called the Chateau Ditch carries runoff from five square miles in northern Indiana. Water travels through pipes and an eight-mile ditch through farmland and rivers ultimately reaching the Mississippi. 
Researchers say a key solution is to plant cover crops like ryegrass and clover to hold down the soil with roots during heavy rains. The Shadow Group has worked with farmers to increase cover cropping. After six years of project implementation, the volume of water from pipes that drained into the ditch fell by about half, and nitrates fell between 50 and 80 percent. Thanks to Dana Cronin and Chad Bouchard for those stories. For Earth East News, I'm Renee Reed. Thank you, Renee. You're welcome, Kate. During the week of Valentine's Day, Americans will purchase more than 50 million pounds of chocolate. If you want to make sure the sweets you pick out for your sweetheart aren't supporting child labor practices or exploiting small farmers, you might want to look for a fair trademark on the back of that heart-shaped box. I spoke with Hans Thayer, the CEO of Fairtrade America, to find out what specifically the fair trademark stands for. Fair trade is a development model in which most of the work tries to accomplish three things. One is to increase the income of family farming families. The second is trying to help them establish commercial and business relationships with companies around the world in what we call fairer terms, in which they can be decision makers. And three is opening the spaces for consumers to understand the realities that farmers face and to have farmers speak on their own about what they're living, about their aspirations and about their dreams. So we try to put all these actors together. We set a fair trade minimum price for commodities, which is a good approximation of production costs. And on top of that, the premium, which is an extra amount that companies contribute to the farming community so they themselves can choose what to do with those monies. And they're usually spent in, in social projects like having access to better education for their kids or better health or water systems and to help them strengthen their cooperatives as well. The way that companies show consumers that they're engaging small farmers in these fairer terms of trade is they use a mark, a certification, and uh, farmers themselves are audited and get certified uh, to ensure that they're complying, for example, with environmental standards, proper stewardship of nature, of resources that they produce without having child labor, which, as you know, is a big epidemic, I'm afraid, in cocoa, and that they're producing under those standards as well. So both sides are audited by a third-party company. So they ensure that A, producers are producing under fair trade terms and that businesses are buying and selling under fair trade terms. That minimum price is important. It means that even if cocoa prices fluctuate, farmers can count on being paid a certain price, and that price will at least cover their costs for production. Lately, market prices for cocoa have been so volatile. Cocoa prices fell 30% last year. So that minimum price has been crucial for farmers to simply stay afloat. Fair trade also includes a premium, 
which is something like profit sharing that companies pay to farmers and to farm co-ops. They choose what to do with that premium. Usually is used for social purposes, and sometimes a percentage of it can be withdrawn if they all agree as cash, and that would be complementing their income as cash. But fair trade works with other organizations to address more than mere subsistence in these communities. Unfortunately, with the current prices of cocoa, poverty is still rampant. At fair trade, we look at minimum prices, but the next step is to analyze and benchmark what a living income looks like for a family. What we're aiming at now is not just the minimum price, but also how we and other actors can support families get to a living income. Hans Thayer traveled to the Ivory Coast with Kurt Vandermeer in 2016. He's the CEO of Endangered Species, one of the fair trade chocolate companies. He not just wants to do the best chocolate, Mm -hmm. uh, he also understands how by doing business in a different way he can really have such a profound impact in families, not just this generation, but future generations. Next, we visit Endangered Species Chocolate Company in Indianapolis, to learn how they produce their chocolate bars with these fair trade sourced cocoa beans. Coming up in just a moment. Production support comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at PersonalFinancialServices.net. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Resch Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. To learn about the entire bean-to-bar process of fair trade chocolate, I paid a visit to the Endangered Species Chocolate Company in Indianapolis. Whitney Bembenick is the Director of Innovation and my tour guide. Hi. Hi, I'm Kate Young. I'm here to see Whitney. That's me. She led me into a windowed hallway overlooking the chocolate factory floor. It's lined with storyboards describing all of the chocolate-making steps. We start with the most important step for fair trade chocolate, the sourcing. All of their cocoa comes from farmers certified through the fair trade process. Our cacao comes from the Cote d'Ivoire. Cocoa can only grow thrive, I should say, 10 degrees north and south of the equator. And so West Africa has this really rich soil that is perfect for growing a premium cacao. And that Theobroma cacao tree has been growing in that region for centuries. Cacao, the word, is abbreviated from the Theobroma cacao. That's the tree that cacao pods are growing on. There's an image in front of you, and this is a really young pod that is just a beautiful lime green color and it's no bigger than heel to fingertip of my hand so five to six inches long by the time it reaches maturity that pod has grown to nearly the size of a football and it's become this beautiful kind of red orange yellow ripened fruit and that pod when you slice it open is going to have anywhere from 50 to 75 
uh, cocoa beans inside of it enrobed in this fibrous pulp that's white. So when you really crack it open, it does look like a fruit. I think people forget that the cacao is truly a fruit, but it looks like a fruit. And what the farmers have to do is they have to take these beans that are wet and mushy because of this pulp, and they need to dry them out. That drying is actually a fermentation process. So over the course of time, the beans are being rotated, they're being folded, and that pulp is drying and running off through fermentation. What's left are what we then bring over into the United States to process into chocolate. The first step that our processor is going to do is clean and sort the beans. You're gonna see, if you're familiar with, with coffee, um, this is a lot like the first steps of also roasting coffee. So the beans are clean and sorted and this allows any debris to be cleaned out. Those beans are also tested for their fat content and for endangered species chocolate, we have a targeted fat content that we're looking for in order to then produce our cocoa butter and cocoa liqueur that's gonna go into the actual solid chocolate bars that we sell. Um, and so that's part of the quality testing that begins the process of our specific recipe uh, to make our chocolate. Once that's done, the beans are roasted. This is where I say we're starting to look a little bit like we're making coffee. The beans are roasted, and this again is a step in our recipe. Each chocolate manufacturer has their unique time and temperature that they're roasting at, and that roasting loosens the hull or the shell of the bean so that we can get to the heart of cocoa, which is the cocoa nib. So the cocoa nib is no bigger than like the blunt tip of a pencil. And that cocoa nib is what all things chocolate are going to be derived from. The nibs are crushed in order to create cocoa mass. And that cocoa mass is where we're going to continue adding pressure to extract the cocoa butter, the fat portion of the nib, and then reserve the cocoa solids. And that cocoa solid is where you're going to either make cocoa powder or you're going to then make cocoa liqueur. So we do cocoa butter and then we do cocoa liqueur. And those two constituents come together to make the total percent of cocoa in all of our recipes. So we have a 48% milk chocolate, we have a 60% dark chocolate, a 72% dark chocolate, and then our best-selling product, which is an 88% dark chocolate. Those numbers equal the total amount of cocoa solids that are in each of our chocolate bars. Each company is a little different. So our 88% dark chocolate bar actually doesn't contain cocoa butter. We only use cocoa liqueur to get to those cocoa solids. The remainder of our products do have that cocoa butter in it. And so the recipe is unique to what desired melt we want, what desired mouthfeel we're looking for, and the ratio of those ingredients is going to dictate that. The final step once we've started taking that cocoa liqueur and cocoa butter is to add the rest of the stuff that we need to put in to, in order to make it a chocolate bar. And for our dark chocolate, all that's left is sugar, vanilla, and a non-GMO soy lecithin. And the cocoa liqueur, people are confused because they sometimes think liqueur is liquor, but it's not. It's just making it into a liquid cocoa constituent. So it's a very rich, almost like a, if you were to look at it, you would think like a molasses or a syrup because it's this really thickened, uh, syrupy look. But the, the other ingredients added to it, um, sometimes sugar's added, sometimes not. Sometimes it's just heat. A true cocoa liqueur is only made from cocoa. There are cases in which 
that's for us it's not for us it's only made from cocoa the process of taking chocolate and taking the chocolate components and making it into what we know as a palatable chocolate is adding those other ingredients that we've been discussing the sugar the vanilla and the, the emulsifier there are a variety of types of emulsifiers. Um, we choose to use soy less than because it allows us to have the smoothest chocolate bar. If you've had an endangered species chocolate bar, you know that it's exceptionally smooth. You don't get a lot of high granulation in the texture of the bite or the melt in that chocolate. And so um, while there could be alternatives, there, there's a um, sunflower lecithin that some chocolate companies have started to use, and other chocolate companies have decided to take it out completely. What that is doing is creating either a little bit less smooth bar because sunflower isn't as ideal, or if you don't add it at all, it is going to be more granular by nature. Uh, you can force that with the step that we're going to talk about here. You can force particle size to be reduced. But at the end of the day, having that emulsifier to bind your ingredients is what's creating that smooth profile. Because if you don't have it, eventually all of these things we force to come together don't want to be together anymore. The natural progression of, for instance, chocolate bloom on a shelf is just the natural process of cocoa butter saying, I don't want to be with all these other ingredients around me, so I'm going to try to rise to the surface of a chocolate bar. That's why it's white. It's actually the cocoa butter that is in that chocolate bar coming out to the surface of the bar. And it can be accelerated by a lot of things, but it naturally happens to chocolate as it sits and ages. So by bloom, you're talking about that kind of white, little bit of a film that you might see on chocolate when you open it or when it's been sitting in your, or if you put it in your fridge or something like that. Bloom can be accelerated or um, antagonized by a lot of things. You mentioned putting it in your refrigerator. It's taking it out of the refrigerator and having that temperature um, swing and then the condensation build up because moisture is chocolate's enemy that will accelerate bloom. Or on the opposite end of the spectrum if it becomes too warm because what we're going to learn about when we go out to the production floor is that as much as chocolate is an art, it's also a science and it is very temperature dependent. So as I was training to learn how to work with chocolate, it was temperature, temperature, temperature. You're, you're constantly trying to target these ideal temperatures at which the fat structure of chocolate is changing and evolving. And so as you change the temperature of a solid chocolate bar, you are altering its makeup, its structure, its fat base. Um, and that is where then things like chocolate bloom can occur. Okay. So anybody who has tried to make truffles at home and needs to temper chocolate might have a familiarity with this. Correct. And there's a lot of variables that can impact that. So the level of cocoa butter, the uh, viscosity, which is impacted by conching. So conching is the process of taking and folding these ingredients together to reduce the particle size and emulsify your liquid your liquid chocolate. And so during that process, this is when everything is coming together harmoniously and we have a beautiful, luscious chocolate that's ready to be tempered and finished. And the tip process of tempering, as you mentioned, is bringing that chocolate into a working temperature, which is formalizing the crystalline structure, which is a beta-5 crystalline structure. You're formalizing that structure to where it's ready to be worked with. And then once you get it done, you don't want to mess with it because you don't want to break that structure apart that you've built. So 
our processor actually does this for us and puts it into 10 pound blocks and puts those 10 pound blocks on large pallets and ships it to us here at Endangered Species where we are now going to melt that down, retemper it, add the inclusions like our um, sea salt and almond bar or our cranberry almond or our raspberries and then make it into the three ounce bar that we sell on shelf which is one of the more common ways that chocolate's made in the United States. There are bean-to-bar manufacturers in the U.S. They are more rare than common because the process taking from the cacao pod to here is a very specialized and unique industry that people spend their whole life becoming experts in. At this point, we donned our hairnets and headed onto the factory floor. We skirted around the periphery, so I couldn't see as much of the chocolate bar production as I had hoped for, but Whitney walked me through the basic steps. So on the far wall, those pallets are what our chocolate come in on. We have four different recipes that come in on these pallets, and then we have a melt tank farm that all day long we're adding that chocolate into and melting the chocolate down. So each of our chocolates is melted at about 110 degrees and what that is doing is it's liquefying the chocolate so it can be worked with but it's also breaking down the beta-5 crystalline structure that is regularly causing that form chocolate bar that we know. So as that fat structure is melted down we start the process of tempering. No matter your cocoa content you have crystallization at 94 degrees. And that crystallization is being developed through the process of cooling the chocolate down and seeding it with a solid crystalline structure. So we're actually reintroducing formed beta-5 crystalline into that chocolate at 94 degrees in order to establish your fat structure. If you think about you have a ladder and you have rungs on the ladder, what you're doing is you're getting all the components together and you have all that you need at 94 degrees. Where each chocolate starts to differ is the temperature that you're then going to go to in order to work with that specific product. So we go through large temperers. They're constantly giving us temperature readouts to know what our chocolate temperature is, how far we are away from temper, and when it's ready to be sent into the depositor. So through a series of transfer pipes, the chocolate comes over to the depositor where we then add our inclusions. Today, it looks like we're um, on line two, and that's our dark chocolate with organic caramel and pink Himalayan salt. So the 60% dark chocolate comes over. Depending on the cocoa content, you're gonna have a set working temperature. And what that's telling you is these components of the ladder that you've built at 94 degrees are starting to assemble. For our highest cocoa content, we're going to work with it at 88 to 89 degrees because the ladder is set, it's ready. If you were to work with it when it's too warm, you don't have all the rungs on the ladder. If you were to work with it after that temperature, you're starting to break it apart. And so what that translates to on shelf is a poorly tempered or a, a chocolate that's been worked with at the wrong temperature could have a dull appearance, it could have a chewy texture, and it could also bloom more quickly if those temperatures are not critical to the operation. We are able to produce roughly 35,000 chocolate bars per line per shift. So we currently are running one production shift Monday through Friday, um, sometimes Saturday. 
but these three lines together are really pumping out a lot of chocolate for us. I think when people see like a big brand that's on shelf, they don't really think about what goes into actually making each one of the chocolate bars, what goes into making that product. So this is Alejandro. He has our uh, pink salt that he is weighing out for a specific recipe that we've created. He's mixing it in to our organic liquid caramel. And what he'll do with that is he'll take it over into the depositing area and he'll um, take that bucket and mix it into the top depositor so that it can be deposited into the, the molds. And his mixer really looks like a, um, you know, the, a power drill at an industrial <laughs> scale. It really does. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty um, heavy-duty piece of, of equipment for him, that's for sure. But it gets the job done, um, and it, it gets the, that salt mixed in well. So once the bars are deposited, they go through these cooling tunnels, and it takes about 30 minutes for the mold to make it from the depositor to where we're going to walk down here and see how it gets conveyed out to our wrapper. Okay, well, since this is radio, I need to describe a little bit. So... <laughs> It's a big room with a lot of stainless steel. There's some vats in the back, and then there's some, I guess you said these are coolers, stainless steel boxes with lots of pipes and cords and things going up to the ceiling. And then we've got a conveyor belt that's coming around, and I see a stack of chocolate bars in front of a couple of people who are in front of, is that the packaging right. machine? So, so they're the about wrapper. to, the, the wrapper, okay. And it smells very richly of chocolate in here. <laughs> About how many people are on a shift? So Endangered Species Chocolate has a total of 45 employees. 14 of those employees are front office staff, and then 31 of them are working here in production and warehousing. And I guess it also is going to matter what temperatures it's stored at through the whole cycle of getting it into the store. Right, so that's another critical piece of our puzzle that we require all of our transit services to keep our product at a controlled temperature. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That was it for my tour of the chocolate factory. I didn't get to swim in a chocolate river, but I did learn a lot about how to make a premium fair trade chocolate bar. Baby, I never felt so fine. I love the way you blow my mind. I always want you by my side. You give me joy, you make me smile. You can learn about Endangered Species Chocolate Company's conservation efforts and more at chocolatebar.com or find a link on our website, eartheats.org. Just to find a way to be with you again And always Baby, it's time for us to fly Cause there's no love that we can hide I always want you by my side You give me joy, you make me smile There is no The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, 
Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Whitney Bembenick, Hans Thayer, and Kyle Friend. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net.